Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I'm glad that we're all here today. If uh, you haven't taken the time to buy your tickets for our comedy night on Saturday, February 1st, you can do that very easily. You can just go out and purchase them off our website. It's a great night of last. I think when we first started, so we did a comedy night, and that was one of the first times uh, I think Matt Falk ever. Uh, he was, just, he was just new on the scene, and he's now the feature, he's now the headliner, and uh, the guy's actually, he's incredibly funny. Now, not only is it a comedy night, but it's also a fundraising night, and so uh, you, by just purchasing a ticket, having a great evening, are going to also help uh, us as we try to raise some money to bring in another refugee family to Canada. So bring your friends, bring your spouse. Uh, your life group, whatever it is, make it a great night, a night of uh, entertainment, even doing something good for our community. Today we're coming close to the end of our series in Matthew. Uh, in the weeks to come, we'll be finishing up Matthew. We'll be looking at local and global missions of what's going on, what's on our hearts here as we kick off this new year. Um, followed by that, we're going to do a five-week series called The Theology of Sex. Now, you notice how it gets quiet as soon as I say that word? It just, it's, there's a hush. So, uh, a theology of sex, and we're actually going to end that with a Q&A, which will follow up in the evening. It would be more personal. And we're entitling that Asking for a Friend. So, we're just going to make it work for everybody, and uh, then we're going to jump into the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But today we find ourselves in Matthew 27, and we're going to pick it up at verse 27. So you can open your Bibles, and we're going to make it all the way to the end of the chapter today. And that seems like a lot of ground to cover in a short time. But the entire focus today is going to be around some of the historical events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. And it's really something that you can't separate into segments. So we got to do the story. And if you recall, the last life lesson in Matthew... We ended with Pilate under the peer pressure of the Jewish community set, uh, setting the criminal Barabbas free instead of Jesus. And now we have Jesus before them and we read in the scriptures that the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released, that is Pilate, released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Now again, it's interesting because this flogging was a, an incredibly severe punishment. Um, that the blood loss during the flogging would actually speed up the death in the whole crucifixion process. That's why they did it. They'd use a whip called the cat of nine tails. If you did not know this, it, it had bones and rocks and broken pottery all tied to it. And so when it made contact with the skin, it would just rip it apart. It was a brutal torture. There was, there's no other way to say it. And it was only the beginning of what a condemned person would face. Now, Jesus is not guilty of anything. Maybe you've heard that over and over again. And yet he's subjected to this torture. And all the people, and, and, and I have to say this. The people knew what was right and what was wrong. People who knew what was right would not stand up for what was right. All because they thought, they were powerless and hopeless. All because the people were under the impression that their leaders were too powerful to stand up against. And the reality was that the ruling Jewish leaders 
had the average person convinced that the Romans would get them if they ever resisted. Now, there was part of that is true. However, the ruling Jewish people manipulated everybody around them. They bluffed people into thinking that what was going on with Jesus was right because they said so. And the people who had just days before, if we remember uh, Palm Sunday, days before, they were gathered in their masses and Jesus is passing by and they're praising him and they're shouting Hosanna to them. Now they're sucked into this mob mentality yelling, crucify him. Not because he's done anything wrong, because it's, but because it's just easier to go along instead of standing up and standing against the flow. The whole court proceedings that Jesus goes through is really a sham. You know, when we read that an innocent man was being convicted, that's actually an understatement. And, and again, I find it amazing that Jesus is criticized by the authorities for not obeying the rules or following the traditions of the elders. But they themselves, when you begin to study it, actually broke a number of their own rules in the whole process of trying to convict Jesus. And so when you study the last days of Jesus and what the authorities did to get Jesus arrested and convicted, here's what we actually find. According to Exodus chapter 23, verse 8, no arrest was to be influenced by a bribe. Can you say Judas? The Hebrew law said that no criminal proceedings should be carried out after the sunset, and they did. Hebrew law said that the judges or the Sanhedrin members were not allowed to participate in an arrest, and they did. Hebrew law said that there was to be no trials before the morning sacrificed. So there was always a morning sacrifice in the temple. There was no trials that were supposed to happen beforehand. They did. It was ignored. Hebrew law said all trials had to be in public. There were to be no secret trials. This one was done behind closed doors. According to Hebrew law, Sanhedrin trials could only be performed in the hall of judgment in the temple compound. This was not happening in this case with Jesus. According to Hebrew law, the proper procedure was that the defense would be first and then the accusation, which is opposite to our legal system. That didn't happen here. And again, according to Hebrew law, all may argue in favor of acquittal, but not all may argue in favor of a conviction, which was very interesting. The accused had to have at least one defender. Didn't happen in Jesus's case. According to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, there had to be two or three witnesses whose testimony had to agree in every detail. That didn't happen with Jesus. There was to be no allowance for the accused to testify against himself. And yet Caiaphas himself, the high priest, charges Jesus under oath to do it. If you find it, you can read it in John chapter 18. Bible says, uh, the Bible, Leviticus 21 says that the high priest was not to tear his garments. But in Matthew 26, he does. Like, isn't the hypocrisy crazy? Charges cannot originate with the judges, but it's the judges who actually accuse Jesus of blasphemy. The accusation of blasphemy was only valid if the name of God was pronounced. Interesting enough. And, and Jesus did not use God's name. Again, another rule. The prosecutors broke. 
A person couldn't be condemned on the basis of their own words. There had to be witnesses. And yet we quote the prosecutors as saying, why do we need more witnesses? They denied Jesus of any of that. The verdict cannot be announced at night. A verdict can only be announced in the daytime, interesting enough. In the cases of capital punishment, the trial, the guilty verdict could not occur at the same time. They had to be separated by 24 hours. That did not happen. The sentence could only be pronounced three days after the guilty verdict. Three days after the guilty verdict. That didn't happen. A person condemned to death was not to be scourged or beaten beforehand. It happened. And no trial was allowed on the eve of the Sabbath or on the eve of a feast day. These guys broke their own law. And this becomes absolutely shocking as to how quickly the religious elite wanted Jesus dead. And we pick it up in verse 27 where the, the governor's soldiers took him into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Uh, you know, he's taken here by the governor's soldiers. Uh, what we see is that Matthew doesn't want to portray Pilate in a favorable light. He's describing what it is, and I don't think he really appreciated Pilate at all. Uh, and, and when we read about a company of soldiers, a whole company of Roman soldiers is about 600 men. Uh, we can presume that there was probably fewer at this point, but nonetheless, there was a lot of Roman soldiers walking around. They stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him. They mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff. They struck him on the head again and again and again. So when we look at the trial of Jesus, first we see that the Jews are mocking him. Right? In Matthew 26, they mocked his claim to be the Messiah. Now what we see is that the Gentiles begin to mock him. His claim to be king. The scarlet robe was probably a Roman soldier's cloak. You know, that, that color would have been uh, an, the imperial purple. That's why it was called a, a scarlet robe. And, and you have this torturous crown of thorns. Uh, and this uh, completing the picture, the staff, right, was placed in Jesus' right hand. Uh, that was his royal scepter. And it's interesting because these are detail. This is a detail. The scepter is a detail that Matthew alone mentions. Now, this is just par for the course for the Roman soldiers. They're so hardened by the war, of years of war, of years of treating people, uh, of humans like animals. To them, Jesus is just another criminal. He's worthless. He's less than human. And so to them, this is their fun and games. Go figure that out. Which actually speaks to the level of sin and depravity in their society, in Roman society. See, the Roman soldiers, these guys knew how to be ruthless, but they took it to the extreme when it comes to torturing people. And honestly, they had no clue what they were actually doing and who they were actually doing it to. I've heard people say, well, you know, it's a different culture in different times. The reality is, is that it was a society that was overcome by sin and depravity. Which led them to dehumanize people and to treat them this way. May I say, suggest to you this morning that we live in a society that is quickly approaching the same level of sin and depravity. We live in a society that's all about peace and justice. 
Now, trust me, I got nothing wrong with peace and justice. I think it's a good thing. But we live in a society that's all about peace and justice as long as you agree with certain points of view. And the vast majority of time, those certain points of view are, are, are things, if I can say this, that are sinful and stand against Scripture and God's standard. And when this vocal minority doesn't get their way, we see that they can actually begin to turn violent. And they're able to do that because they devalue and they see other people who don't share their point of view as less than human. And these groups or these factions will join together. And before you know it, you have people being mocked. You have people being ridiculed. You have people being made fun of. You have been people, in some cases, being treated as less than human. And others see this happening. And they're afraid to speak up and stand against the actions of those. And before you know it, we will become like a Roman culture and society, which, by the way, fell. I'm not a doomsday sayer. I'm reading our culture. And we tend to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And if we're not continue, if we're not, not careful and we continue to act the way we're acting, I believe this is the road that our society is going to head. It's crazy. You know, and, and when you think about it, and, and I want to be careful how I say this, but as believers, we're already mocked and made fun of if you believe in Jesus. I know my wife at university in one of her first classes when she went in a master's level, that was exactly what was going on because people knew who she was, a Christian, a pastor's wife, a teacher in a Christian school. And at a master's level, she's feeling it. As Christians, we've been called backward, ignorant, bigoted, narrow, old-fashioned, and there's so much more. Which is actually a very mild version of what Jesus had to do, endure before his death. But you see it happening in our society. And this passage that we're looking at actually offers a grotesque parody about the truth of Jesus. It also shows how sinners respond to the disclosure of his true kingship. And it's precisely because this is Jesus the King. This is the Holy One um, uh, of Israel, the very embodiment of love and selflessness that he's treated this way. The soldiers spit on him. They took a staff. They struck him on the head again and again. Matthew is describing this. He's seeing it. He's watching from a distance. Because to their mind, Jesus is not a king. These guys wouldn't be doing this to Caesar or Pilate, right? Jesus receives this treatment because he is king. And, and the followers may accept the treatment. Did you hear what I just say? If you're a follower of Jesus, we can expect the same treatment. Because when you read the scriptures, we see that the more truly we represent Jesus, the more predictable does the persecution become. Really? Yes. Second Timothy says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yes. Those are hard words. Those are words that in our society that we have grown up so blessed in that it hasn't really resonated to us. Now, um, I posted an article on persecution on my Facebook. 
And of course, you get the responses, and somebody posted, well, what about us being persecuted in Canada? You used to wish my response was like, wow, are you serious? I wanted to delete, but I left it. And the reason is that sometimes, you know, when we get called names, well, I'm being persecuted. No, no, no. Go and read this article in Christianity Today that talks about persecution and how people are dying for their faith. We, we don't get it, but let me say this. Our society is moving in the wrong direction. One commentator felt that Matthew stresses perse- the persecution of Jesus because he wanted to encourage his readers. The letter that he was writing to is those who were suffering of persecution at the time of his writing. Matthew goes on, he, he emphasizes the mocking, the unwittingly, and he unwittingly fulfills this, the prophecies of the Old Testament. You know, you compare the passages of the crucifixion, open up Psalms chapter 22, begin to read through it right away. You will see the fullest realization of Jesus written a thousand years before his death. They hurl insults, they pierce his hands and more. They, they fulfill every word spoken a thousand years before. Jesus is silent. He doesn't respond. Isaiah said man made it very hard for him and caused him to suffer, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was taken like a lamb to be put to death. A sheep does not make a sound while its wool is cut off. He did not open his mouth. And so what we see throughout the Old Testament is Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures predicted about him. After they had mocked him, they took off a robe. They put on his own clothes. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, the cross which the victim was required to carry was probably just the beam, not the whole entire cross. And uh, he would carry that beam to the scene of the execution, and then it would be probably hoisted up. Uh, And now, again, there is a variety of different executions, and I'm only presuming at this point in time. But we can presume that the pole was already in place and, and the person that we tied to the other pole, uh, to the cross being hosted up and placed on a T. In some cases, it was a cross as we know it. In other cases, it was actually an X. Regardless how it was. Given the flogging and the beating that Jesus had already received, it's not surprising that he required assistance. And now here this stranger is coerced into carrying Jesus' cross. This guy named Simon of Cyrene. Mark chapter 15 is interesting because he goes a little bit more detail. He identifies him more fully as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, why, why would he say that? Well, we can suggest and surmise that because he named Alexander and Rufus, it's quite possibly that all these guys became Christians. Why else would you name their names? It was quite possible that because of these series of events, because their father was involved in the crucifixion against his will, that at some point in time after the resurrection, they all saw and believed. They carried, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull in Aramaic. In Latin, the counterpart word is is Kelva, which that's where we get the word Calvary. So in in downtown Winnipeg, we have a church called Calvary Temple. Not Calvary like you ride a horse, but Calvary, all right? And uh, uh, that's where we get our words from. Scripture says that they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. This is an interesting passage of Scripture because the dominant view when, when we look at the crucifixion is that this drink was a a narcotic. 
that was offered to the condemned person to help them, you know, uh, basically it's a painkiller and they, they don't embrace then what's going on. And, and an offer, though, that when it was placed to Jesus' mouth, he refuses it. And why does he do that? He wants to keep his head clear. Isn't that crazy? He just wants to keep his head clear. He refuses anything that would diminish his suffering. Because remember in the garden where he talked about having to drink the cup of wrath? Now there's another view. The other view suggests that Jesus first tasted the drink and that he wanted it, but only refused it because it was, had gall in it or myrrh, or it was actually very bitter, and that was the only reason why he refused it. I'm not sure about that, but that's another view. But we also got to see who's offering him the drink. If it was offered by Jewish women at the cross, that would be an, an, a, a thing of compassion. It wasn't offered by Jewish women. It was offered by the, the Roman soldiers. And so I think this whole process that Jesus has been going through was a mockery process. And one can conclude that this drink was not as a gesture of compassion for a suffering man, but rather the soldiers did it to amuse themselves at the victim's expense. Another form of mockery. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. That was the way they got paid. You know, they were required to sit there and, and wait until the person would, would die. They were required to you know, make sure that nobody would come and rescue the person and take them off the cross. And once the person was dead, the soldiers are required to go back and report that the person has expired. And yes, these people who were crucified were crucified naked. It was just the final way to humiliate you. But there's a significant verse here in 36. And sitting, them, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, the Jews had a problem with this because they, they wanted the, the soldiers to say, this is Jesus who claims to be king of the Jews, but Pilate refused. We really don't know Pilate's underlying reason. Maybe he just wanted to get under these guys' skin. We don't know. But uh, it, it was probably his final dig at these Jewish leaders. But even on the cross, the mockery continues. And that's the point. Two rebels were crucified him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they all mocked him. Notice this mocking never stops. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Come down and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. We know that one of those rebels, one of those robbers comes around. But again, the true depth of sin, the true depth of depravity of that society is completely evident. You know, we... we uh, we have this age-old excuse, and we see it here that people have for not believing in Jesus. 
We have an age-old excuse that has been passed down through the centuries that we put conditions on things. Jesus, if you just do a miracle for me, I'll believe in you. Help me through this situation in my life, God, and I'll believe in you. I'll serve you. Right? Give me this, God, and I'll believe in you. Give me that, God, I'll believe in you. You know, do we really want more proof that he is who he says he is? Do we really need all of that? Here's what Jesus did. He was conceived and born of a virgin, something that was biologically impossible. He lived a perfect and sinless life, something that no person in the history of the world has ever done or is able to do. Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle, healing people, delivering people. He now willingly endured the arrest, the torture, the crucifixion on the cross. And now what are they doing? Oh, come down off the cross. I think he did one better. After uh, he was dead for three days, he raised himself from the dead and he took control over everything. Jesus offers us a way of salvation. He offers us eternal life. And all he is asking for is us to believe and put our faith in him. That's it. But still, we want more. We, we want, we have to have more. And the problem is not the work of Jesus. The problem is our inability to, to be still and to listen to the Holy Spirit. Our problem is that we get so caught uh, up with the things of the world that we drown out God telling us the truth. We drown out God convicting us of our sin. And many of us, we play this game of Russian roulette and forgive me for speaking harsh. Can I speak my mind? Some of you go, well, don't you already? Actually, I don't because if I was to speak my mind, I would preach without notes and then the church would be empty. I can guarantee you that. So I wrote them down so I could stay on mic. We play this game of Russian roulette where we come to church week after week and do nothing more. We come and I believe the Holy Spirit talks. Man, Steph was preaching this morning. Did you hear it? A little leprechaun, man, she can knock it off. The problem is our inability to, to, to be still and listen to the Holy Spirit. We come, the Holy Spirit talks, but we don't respond. And I'm not just talking about people who need to come into a relationship for Jesus for the first time. And maybe that's you here to this morning. I'm not talking to you. Face it, many of us have been coming for a while. And, I, and, and that's a good thing. That's a sign of commitment but it can also show our complacency. God is speaking to us. God is wanting for us to do things in our community, but sometimes we just can't get past our old ways of thinking, and we're so wrapped up in our behaviors, in our prejudices, in our own way of life, that we have no interest in changing this community for God. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness comes over the land. 
Some are going to say, well, that must have been an eclipse. And who knows, maybe that's exactly what God did. doesn't really matter. We can't say he didn't, but we can't say he did. We just know that darkness comes over the land. And according to Matthew, Matthew focuses not on the scientific explanation. Matthew's focus is on the theological significance of what's going on here. And while Jesus was with them, there was always a sense of hope. And even before Jesus came, there was this sense of hope, this anticipation. That's why we celebrate Advent, right? This arrival, this coming. But now, but now, this Messiah is on a cross and there is no hope. And just that sense of doom, that sense of dread falling upon the people and on the land itself. And as people watch, some of them are still in the process of mocking and ridiculing them. Some of them are probably trying to ease their conscience and make excuses as to why they did what they did. And some of them have just flat out ignored what was going on. Just going on with their daily routine. Oh, the sun's gone. I don't know what's going on here. But here at the cross... The darkness signals God's judgment upon Israel for her rejection and execution of his son. And moreover, because sinful man stands, stands under judgment, the darkness signals God's judgment upon Jesus himself. And Jesus is now suffering the eternal wrath of God on sinners. And there's no way any human could depict the separation Jesus experienced from the Father. Let's not forget what this meant to God the Father in the same time. Those of us who have children know how painful it is for us to observe the suffering of our own kids. Add this to the fact that the suffering of the Son was the plan and the purpose of the Father. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the Father to put his Son on the cross and then to hear sinners daring him to save his own Son? There's a whole dynamic that we miss out that we never look at. And what a price the Father and the Son paid to save unworthy sinners like us. And now it's in this darkness. You know, I have to say this. I did a funeral yesterday for my sister-in-law. But all, all, like, you know, so I'm dealing with death and I'm dealing with hope. The hope of Christ. The hope of heaven. That's not just airy-fairy, but it's a reality. But all week as well, here I am, knee-deep, neck-deep. In the crucifixion. And again, for me, just getting into that study makes it much more real, much more intense. I, I think for me, intense uh, faith building, especially when you deal with death at the same time. And you get to this passage of scripture where it's out of the darkness, he utters this cry. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lemabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some will say that that's the moment that Jesus was separated from the Father. And some say that that's the best metaphor, that God the Father turned his back on Jesus as Jesus bore our sins. 
I'll tell you that none of us understand what it's really like to be completely separated from God. We don't. God is the one that gives us life and keeps our entire universe in motion. We have never experienced life completely void of God, regardless of what we've been through. But this is literally what hell is like. A place of darkness, hopelessness, pain, anguish, and the void of God's presence. At that point, we are completely alone there. And this is the place where sin resides and where God turns his back on that sin. When some of those standing there heard him say this, they said, hey, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. You know, it's amazing that these guys didn't realize what Jesus was saying. They never realized that on the cross, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. They thought he was calling out to Elijah. And I believe Jesus' quoting of Psalm 22.1 indicates that he was meditating on the psalm while all of this was taking place because he would have known it inside and out. And so now at this point, he moves from despair to a point of victory. For the Lord has not despised or disdained the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Psalm 22, verse 24. And this sort of helps us to explain this whole act that is taking place uh, uh, regarding confidence and peace reflected in the remaining words of Jesus from the cross. Going from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you'll notice this time, Jesus does take some of this wine vinegar. You know, and, and even if it did contain some sort of narcotic or a tranquilizer, it would have no time to actually produce any effect on him. Because he will almost die immediately after he drank some of this wine. Very interesting. And my own sense is that Jesus probably took some of this wine to relieve his parched throat, hence my water, which I drink all the time, just so I can continue, right? And I'm sure that that's exactly what he's doing here. Why? Because he's got these final words, these triumphant words. And when you take a look at all the Gospels and you bring this series into account, I'm inclined to think that Jesus drinks this little bit of wine, clears out his throat, and he shouts first, it is finished. We read that in John 19. Followed by, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit in Luke. In Matthew we read, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, how do you do that? Just get a little bit of water in your mouth. He gave up his spirit. I love this. His, his life, his life wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. And now God makes his presence known. At the moment, that curtain of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And again, this tearing of the temple veil was something that's very significant, but it's often ignored. The implications of this symbolic event are actually very immense, but they're not spelled out here. 
These will be taken up later in the New Testament. However, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record that this took place. Notice it's torn from the top to the bottom. This temple veil was a very heavy curtain that separated the innermost holy of holies where God resided from the rest of the temple. On the inside is where the high priest would be, only him, and, and, and he would, only he could enter and would offer atonement for the sins of his people. To tear it from the top to bottom basically tells us that it's nearly impossible for a human to do that. And God doing it, when he does it, it now removes the barrier between humans and God. Jesus accomplished the work. And through Jesus, we have direct access now to God. The ability to have one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with the Father. Because of that, all humanity is now restored. The sad thing is, we often refuse to take advantage of that gift. We think that, you know, we can only pray in church, right? Some of us, that, you know, the church is the only place where we connect with God. The church is not the only place to develop our relationship with God. We should be in relationship with God every minute of every day. But what we do, sometimes we just put on our Sunday clothes we come to church we spend some time with God and when we get home we forget about him until the next Sunday or in many cases the, the next time it's convenient for us to come to church on a Sunday that's not a relationship that's a casual friendship selfishly based on what we want as a pastor I speak prophetically Proclamation. God's not interested in that. God wants a true, lasting, exclusive relationship where he's number one in our lives every single day and not just one or two Sundays a month. But something else takes place here that's unique to Matthew. I call it the first zombie apocalypse. That just gives all you rednecks a chance to load your guns. Look what it says. It says the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. Read it carefully. And went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, imagine if we had a big earthquake and all the graves of the Christians in Winnipeg opened up. That would be pretty interesting. Imagine if they all started coming back and paying a visit to us here in Winnipeg. What would happen, right? Our dead relatives show up. Friends, you know, those who are believers who died in Christ, you know, what do you think the reaction would be? Like I said, the rednecks were right, right? Load your guns, headshot, boom, here we go, let's make it happen. Zombie apocalypse. This is very interesting, this passage of scripture, because we don't hear it preached often. We know that the dead were not raised until after the resurrection, that's what it says. There was this earthquake, the tombs opened up. But it's not until after the resurrection, according to Matthew, that the dead are raised. I believe Matthew wants us to see the hand of God plainly on the events surrounding the death of Jesus. Another thing is, I believe the graves were open in preparation for the resurrection of these Jerusalem saints coinciding with Jesus' resurrection. In other words, the earthquake sets the stage for the resurrection of the dead of these so-called Jerusalem saints. And I believe what we are meant to see here is the connection between the death of Jesus and his resurrection. The death of Jesus was a supernatural event. 
and the spectacular phenomena that accompanied it underscores this fact. To Matthew, to other apostles, Acts 2.22, the, the resurrection of Jesus is a necessary outcome to the cross, and he wants us, the readers, to recognize this. Can you imagine the impact that this has on the world? The, um, never mind the world, but the people of Jerusalem at this time. What a way to underscore Jesus' resurrection. Because not only does Jesus rise from the dead, but a group of saints were raised at the same time, according to the scriptures. Who were these folks? Personally, I don't think it was random. I don't think it was every one. I actually think it was God had chosen specific, and I wonder whether or not it was actually the prophets. The prophets that were killed and buried in Jerusalem. Because when we go back through everything we walk through in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus is talking to the people. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the laws and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets, you decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not taken part in, in, uh, with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, prophets would come to the children of Israel in Jerusalem, and they would kill them. They were speaking on behalf of God, they killed them. Jesus goes on, he says, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. I think when we read these passages of scripture, which we don't talk about because they seem so far out, I think that it's, it's reasonable to assume that some of those who were raised and who went about Jerusalem were these martyred prophets. What a story they would have had to tell. What an impact they must have had on the people of Jerusalem. Why do you think there were so many people getting saved in Acts? The hand was God was on those people. They needed to realize it. Just like God raised these people from the dead after Jesus' death. The sad thing was the only ones beside Jesus' disciples that seemed to get what was going on at the cross were the Romans. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Things got real, real quick. The time of mocking is over. Many women were there watching from a distance, and they followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them was Mary Magdalene, the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. But it was over with now. It was too late to change the things. They, they had to move on now beyond this point. 
And so as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea. His name was Joseph. He himself had become a disciple of Jesus. And so going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own tomb and he had cut it out of the rock. And so he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. So Joseph's role in all this was to provide the tomb and initially basically to clean Jesus up. Now they didn't do the full burial ritual because time was limited. Remember they were breaking the law themselves because Passover and all the Jewish customs had to be taken into effect here. So he basically takes Jesus' body, wraps him in clean linen, puts him in the tomb. Why? To keep the animals away from the body. And another important key factor through the last part of verse 60s, he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and he went away. And the reason that this is important is because it plays into the miracle of the stone being rolled away that we'll see next week in chapter 28. But even though Jesus was dead, the Jews were still not satisfied. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. They said, sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. Give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Jews didn't, I, I don't believe for one moment that the Jews believed the disciples were going to come and steal the body. These guys knew what they did and they want assurance that Jesus would stay in the tomb. You know? You know, what if Jesus did come up with the guards killed him? You have to ask a whole lot of questions, but... What eventually happens is that Jesus does come out and the guards see what happened. They run away or they fell on his, their face worshiping him. But in reality, he couldn't set things up better for the resurrection. He couldn't set things up better for the disciples and the message that was to come. There's no way anybody could steal Jesus' body. And now they have no other explanation for the empty tomb other than the fact that, you know, he rose from the dead. Pilate listens, grants their wish, take a guard, he says, go make the tomb as secure as you know it. And so they did this, that. They made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. So now you got a wax seal, you got the stone, you got a, you got a guard. You got at least two to four soldiers standing there. Nobody's going to open up that tomb without the guards knowing it and or allowing it. Which actually sets us up for next week very beautifully. So what do we get from this?
the cross where I first saw the light. from this? What do we glean from this? Sure, it's a nice little history lesson I gave you, but is that all it is? Is it just about history? No, no, it's, it's really about our faith and our understanding of God's word. Do we believe God's word? Do we believe the scriptures? Do we believe these events happened the way they did? Because some of them sound like a stretch. And if we say yes, then the question is, if we believe this part, why do we live like we don't believe the rest? Why do we live lives that have no faith in God? Why do we live lives that have no love for our neighbor? Why do we do everything we can to solve our problems and only consult God as a last resort? Why do we not trust God with everything? You can say amen or ouch anytime. Even I drink to that. I'm, I'm with you on that. What would it be like for us to do today just spend some time wherever you are seated and think about what we do believe. Think about what we say we believe and ask ourselves if our lives reflect what we claim to believe. Nothing changes unless we're willing to change. Are you willing? You know, we read this account of Jesus' death. We should ask ourselves why he's placed such a great emphasis on the cross. And I believe that Matthew has written the gospel in such a way that makes the cross the main climax of the book. You can't miss it when you read it. It's more than just the miracles and the healings and everything else. Here is what Jesus has been about from the beginning. His death on the cross of Calvary and subsequent resurrection is the one and only way by which men can obtain forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Just as Moses, John writes, was lifted up by the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his only Son, so that everybody who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The death of Jesus puts, especially the death of a Christian, in a whole new light. The death of Jesus, it's ugly, it's wicked, though it was, so far as any human's participation is concerned, it draws people to faith. Christ's death can be the death for us if we trust the saving work of him on the cross. He was innocent. As Judas, Pilate, Pilate's wife, one of the thieves who hung beside Jesus, and the Roman soldiers all testify. This is what makes his death unique 
and effective for us. He didn't die for his sins because he's innocent, but for the sins of lost men and women like you and me. And so the death of Jesus is the payment for our sins and the only way that we'll ever obtain eternal life. It's also the pattern for us to follow. First Peter, slaves, be subjected to your masters with all reverence, not only those who are good and gentle, but those who are uh, perverse. For God find, for this finds God's favor because if because of conscience towards God, someone endures hardships and suffering unjustly. For what credit is you if you sin and are mistreated, endure it. But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. So for this, you were called since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may cease from sinning and live lives for righteous, righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, for you were going astray like sheep, but now you've turned your back to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. Just as Jesus took up his cross, people, we take up ours. If anybody wants to become my follower, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross daily. We just read about the cross and follow him. Because whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever wants to, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Oh. Today we celebrate communion. And in doing so, we're going to commemorate the death of Jesus. Paul writes for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So who's invited to the table? You're all invited. The young, the old, the rich, the poor, sinners, saints, you're all invited to the table. Come find your place here where there are no strangers, there are no foreigners. Today, it's only brothers and sisters in the sight of God. And so we come to the table together as children of our one God. And by the way, Jesus has made the guest list, right? Not us. He invites you here as a part of the people of God. So come to the table humbly, not because you've earned a place here, but because you and I need mercy. We need help. Come because you love God and want to love God more. Come because Jesus first loved us and gave himself for us. Come because you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come because you want to experience the mystery of God's grace. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he revealed himself to his disciples, how does he do it? He breaks the bread around the table. My prayer is that you would see the face of God today as we eat together. Why do we give thanks? Because Jesus showed us the way. We give thanks because Jesus is the way. Jesus was a gift from God for the world. He's called Emmanuel, right? God with us. He came to save us from our sins. Jesus lived a life of thankfulness, gave his life as a sacrifice for men. Why should we remember the table? While we remember Jesus' birth, 
we remember his presence as God with us and we remember his life, his love. We remember now his suffering and death on the cross. And we remember the resurrection of the promised life to come. We remember that we are waiting in hope, hope to see Jesus again. And we eat because on the night before Jesus died, he gathered with his friends for a meal. He then took the bread and after blessing, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, just simply remember me. At the same meal, he took a cup of wine, he gave it to them to drink. He said, drink this cup. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So whenever you drink it, remember me. going to be moving to the tables. There's four tables situated. The first three rows here, you're going to exit out this way, make your way over uh, to the table, and then come back in, enter in your row here. That section there, if you can enter into the aisle, go back. There's a table right there behind you where Mike is, and uh, help yourself to the elements, and then come back around into your seats. The two sections here behind the third row, I'm going to invite you to do this very simply. Go into the row, center road, go to the station, and then come back in to your seats. And finally, we have this section here. If you would be able to enter into the aisle here, make your way through here, receive the elements and walk back to your seats and enter that way. Will you please stand with me? Let us pray. God, our creator, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ whose love pursues us, who, who pursues us our whole life long. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life to us in word and in deed, even unto death, the death on the cross. So come, Holy Spirit, feed us with your love that we may be filled with power to love God with all of our hearts and souls and mind. Amen. Please proceed. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, God. 
as we take this bread let it be a sign of all that you did for us and who you are for us thank you for this bread of life and let's participate together Jesus as we drink this cup let it be a sign for us and all that you did for us and who you are for us. And thank you for bringing the peace that passes understanding. God of grace, thank you for the bread and wine, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. God of hope, fill us with your Holy Spirit today that we might have wisdom to understand the mystery of this table and the depth and the height and the breadth and the length of your love for us. And through this meal, strengthen us to be followers of Jesus, a community of peace in a broken world. Give us strength as the people of God to be channels of peace into the world, speaking your peace, living your peace, and always longing for that moment of eternal peace when we shall see you again. And amen. Please stand with me. On your way out, you can please put your communion cups in the garbage. If you have any cups or other stuff underneath your chairs, please take that with you. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for the blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. Here's your blessing, folks.
Oh, just think, next Sunday it's about the resurrection. I'm pumped. I get to preach Easter twice this year. Bring somebody. Ask somebody. The worst they're going to say is no. May the loving power of God's soul sanctuary, which has raised Jesus to new life, may that strengthen you in hope, enrich you with his love, and fill you with joy in the faith. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord and to live the church. We'll see you next week. Be blessed.